Let's get started. Welcome, everyone. This is the July edition uh, of Turf Tuesdays. My name is Jim Brazen. I'm one of your hosts today. I've got my <laughs> colleagues from UT with me, uh, as well as some uh, guests from uh, not only other universities here in the U.S., but we have an international guest today, which is super fun, uh, joining us from across the globe in, in Copenhagen. Um, before we get started into the topic uh, of today's session, which is uh, new grasses, both warm season and cool season. Uh, I'd like to take care of just some of the business I know that's associated with these sessions. Um, many of you I know are interested in uh, pesticide recertification credits. Uh, we are fortunate enough that we uh, not only have pesticide credits for Tennessee, but I believe 15 or 16 other states all the way from Michigan to Hawaii. Um, Lucky for you, there's no action needed on your end. Uh, when you registered for this session, uh, you should have uh, been directed through a number uh, of questions that asked you what state you wanted your pesticide credits in, what your license number is, uh, et cetera. All of that is captured and will be used to populate a roster uh, that will be submitted to your state Department of Agriculture, uh, hopefully uh, later this afternoon. So there's no further action needed uh, from anybody uh, pesticide credit wise uh, that stays with us for the duration of the hour. Uh, as a reminder, these sessions are an hour long. Uh, the Department of Agriculture requires that you stay with us for that uh, entire uh, duration in order to get the, the pesticide credit that you are uh, after. You may uh, have seen this is a recorded session. So if you are watching this on YouTube or listening to this through Apple Podcasts, uh, unfortunately, there are no pesticide credits for that. Uh, those who are with us live are the only ones that um, have uh, the ability for uh, pesticide credits. If you have questions today, um, we have plenty of folks here, critical mass to handle questions. Uh, you'll see there's a Q&A box uh, on the bottom of your screen. Uh, we encourage you to use that Q&A box to uh, answer any or to ask any questions and we will do our best uh, to answer as many of those aloud as we can because this is an, an audio format. Um, if we do miss a few, uh, we can uh, respond to you via text, but we'll make every effort to answer uh, everything we can uh, aloud. So uh, no need to use uh, the hand raising functionality or the chat functionality, uh, have everything go through Q&A uh, and we should be all set there. I think that covers it uh, for our um, technical business. Let's get started. Uh, our guests today are Dr. Becky Grubbs-Bowling from Texas A&M and uh, Dr. Adam Tomes from Iowa State joining us from the International Turfgrass Conference in Copenhagen, Denmark. Welcome. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. What, uh, what time is it in Denmark, Adam? It is 5.30 here. 5.30. And Becky, I know what time it is in, in Dallas, Texas. It's, uh, it's 10.30 Central, which uh, is easy enough to follow. Um, why don't you just for our listeners that are uh, with us that may not be familiar with you, why don't you the two of you uh, give some background about uh, what you do at your universities and kind of your uh, expertise with new grasses and that'll send us off and running. Adam, you want to go first? Sure. 
So um, many of you that are in Tennessee might recognize me from my days of grad school there and um, days of torturing Dr. Sorokin as his technician. So uh, it's great to be on today. Um, a little bit about what I do. I'm an associate professor here at Iowa State, um, also the state turf grass extension specialist. Um, some of what I do is athletic field research, um, but I also run all the NTEPs for Iowa State, as well as um, do a lot of work looking at screening grasses um, for different breeders, different programs, things like that. Um, we have a great shade area, so we do a lot of shade work um, for different companies. Um, luckily, our department head is a um, tree expert and does a lot of um, shade work, shade tree research trials, and has been for the last 30 years. So I have plenty of areas that I can plan in between those and really put it through stress there. So that's kind of in a nutshell, a little bit of background on me. Um, so, uh, as Jim said, I work uh, for Texas A&M, but I'm up at our Dallas Center, uh, which is actually where our turf grass breeding program is. Um, I'm an assistant professor and an extension specialist actually for urban water, uh, but I do a lot of work looking at sustainable landscape management, which involves a huge percentage of turf grass work. And uh, as a result of that, I work very closely with our turf grass breeder here. Uh, her name is Dr. Ambika Chandra. And uh, so I'm excited to be here and talk about uh, some of that today. A big focus of our breeding program here is water use efficiency. So she and I work very close to, uh, with each other. So let's let's jump off there, Becky, and then and then I'm sure we'll go into the cool season uh, area as well. Um, in terms of water use efficiency and in grasses, you know, where are you seeing developments be made? I mean, are there any particular species that uh, are being moved forward for water use, uh, any specific cultivars, anything um, that kind of jumps off the page there? Yeah, there's a lot happening right now. I think it's actually a really exciting time for turf grass breeding. Um, so I'm privileged to be part of a really large multi-state uh, specialty crop research initiative that's funded by the USDA. It's actually on its third iteration, uh, and it involves six universities, mostly across the southeast. Um, but uh, we did add University of California on this last round, um, and then Texas A&M, Oklahoma State, University of Florida, University of Georgia, North Carolina State. So a lot of really strong warm season breeding programs involved in that work, and the big focus of that work is developing grasses that are going to be more resilient in uh, in terms of drought systems that are facing drought. Um, so there's uh, the neat thing about this is that a lot of times in the past, uh, turf grasses maybe were developed within a limited geography. And so the cool thing about this program is that it allows grasses to be screened across multiple states really, really early on in the germplasm selection so that we can identify grasses that exhibit superior water use efficiency or drought resistance across very diverse uh, geographies. And so um, what I'm seeing a lot right now. We've got a few things that are happening at AM that are very exciting. I know, uh, you know, may not see as much St. Augustine grass there where you are, but we have a new release that's due to come out here named 
uh, called cobalt uh, that uses uh, as much as 60 to 80% less water than any other San Augustine currently commercially available. So we're really excited about that one. Uh, certainly we have a lot of improvements still happening on the hybrid Bermuda grass world. Uh, TIFTEF came out a few years ago, still the most drought resistant option on the market coming out of that UGA breeding program. Uh, we've also had a couple come out of the Oklahoma State program that exhibit some really great uh, cold tolerance and uh, transition season color uh, cultivars like Latitude 36 and Tahoma 31. Uh, and they've got a couple more that are in the pipeline right now including uh, one which is going to be a new putting green type uh, Bermuda grass. So of course, a lot of good movement there as well. Um, I would say that uh, there is some um, almost like revisiting of species that I don't know there's been as many improvements on in recent years, but we've got some breeding programs, uh, particularly NC State, uh, Florida come to mind a little bit at UGA that are looking at carpet grass, bahia grass, new centipede grasses. So I think we'll see some interesting things there. Um, but I think probably one of the most exciting species is going to be zoysia grasses. There's a lot happening with zoysia grasses right now. So um, certainly, if you're in the golf world, one of the big things that's uh, that's really happening is we're seeing a lot more interest and adoption of putting green type zoysia grasses. Uh, so there's a couple that are out there uh, that are really making waves. Uh, one of those is from our program at AM and it's called Laser. Uh, so as you saw when you came to visit us last gym, we've got that at the new PGA of America's headquarters golf course. They've got a 75,000 square foot putting green, or it might be about 70,000 square feet now, uh, that's just laser zoysia grass. So huge footprint for that. And it's a beautiful, beautiful grass. And it's going to offer some advantages uh, over Bermuda in terms of mowing requirements, cold tolerance, shade tolerance. Uh, and then PRISM is another that's come out of the, the Blade Runner uh, breeding program also here in Texas that's also been very successful. Uh, and then certainly we're starting to see some activity on the lawn side as well. So, uh, you know, Lobo is a new release from NC State uh, that was, I think, one of only two experimentals in the uh, low input in top warm season trials that did very well. Uh, so they're marketing that as an option, a very resilient option for low input scenarios, low maintenance, uh, low resource use. Um, so excited to, to see more about that one. And then um, another one is going to be the Citrozoi that's coming out of University of Florida. Uh, UF is really good at developing grasses that have some improved pest resistance, disease resistance. Um, and I think that that's a strength of that particular zoysia grass. Of course, we've got innovation from AM, which is uh, gonna have some very similar attributes to Meyer uh, and Chisholm and some others that people may be more familiar with, but it is gonna have a unique texture and density and look to it um, because it is a cross between a, a fine and a coarse textured zoysia. Um, and then I know we've got two uh, that are currently in the current zoysia intact from AM that are really good contenders uh, for new zoysias that I'm really excited about as well. <laughs> That was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's that's why you're here. I mean, I, I have a question about Lobo, um, mainly because it's a it's a grass I've never seen. Um, and I know we did work here uh, when it was an experimental with innovation and it performed really well. It overwintered nicely uh, for the folks that are listening that 
uh, might be working in lawn care and in managing or, or you know, working with those with zoysia grass lawns, it would be a really good fit. Um, you know, Meyer is one of the more common lawn zoysia grasses in Tennessee, El Toro probably being the other. Um, at least from a turf quality standpoint, it stacks up pretty well um, next to those two. Um, Lobo from a, a texture standpoint wise, coarser textured than innovation, finer textured? Coarser textured. Okay. Yeah, coarser textured. It's, it's interesting. I'll share a quick picture here. Um, Brandon was there when we, the day we did this. One of the things that is kind of neat with zoysia grasses now, um, we've been working in our lab with uh, a new herbicide uh, from Syngenta for Bermuda grass control. Um, and it's a, it's a new herbicide technology in a way that allows uh, uh, some of the fusillade based programs for Bermuda grass control to be more uh, aggressive than what we had done in the past. And uh, there's efforts now looking at no-till uh, sprig conversions uh, from Bermuda grass into zoysia grass. So you could uh, sprig your new zoysia grass into your Bermuda grass stand. And then because of the safety um, of this new herbicide, kind of suppress the Bermuda grass that's there. Um, we have a small research trial out right now, uh, kind of looking at this concept uh, in a small footprint. I know the, the same work is being done at the University of Arkansas and the University of Georgia. Um, there was a fairly large scale renovation in the Carolinas uh, of a golf course that converted their fairways uh, with this technique. Um, certainly interesting. And, and when we think about taking a site that might be uh, Bermuda and then wanting to establish, establish it to Zoysia, well, that's in large part done in via sod right now. Um, if we could come in with a different way, that, that, that could, be, uh, could be neat. All right, I'm gonna unshare that real quick. Hey, Jim, or yes, I guess uh, I'll direct this to, to Becky. One of the things that I, I've found kind of interesting is um, just in the last couple of days, um, NTEP has uh, released this Turfgrass Trial Explorer. And I don't know if, if you've had a chance to look at it. I've, I've kind of gone through this a little bit I mean, I, I still think that there's some improvements that can be made in terms of user friendliness, um, primarily because um, when you get into like trying to select a cultivar, if we try to look up Lobo, it's not here, but it probably is in here as a code number somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there's, there's challenges there, but you can certainly go and look at uh, some of these trials. And I, I think it's kind of interesting to see um, the ability to go in and look at like, for example, you were talking about water use efficiency and drought resistance or tolerance, you know, looking at wilting in this, in the Bermuda grass trial, and you can pull up and the green boxes for those watching are the, the, the varieties or the, the, the entries that had the, the top statistical category. And this was performed at, at your station, right? So this one is actually going to be at our college station location, I think, which is going to be run. Oh, by Dr. yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Not in Dallas. Okay. Yeah. So, but, but looking at, you know, being able to see what varieties are performing with regards to certain characteristics that somebody might be interested, that's going to be a nice improvement on what currently is a somewhat labor intensive effort 
Um, but certainly um, there's still some room to improve, like with the cultivar variety designations and things like that. It'll be it'd, it'd be nice to be able to select a variety that's already named and go back and find it as a code number. Um, but I, I don't know. Have you had a chance to look at this at all? Either of I you? have not. I have not played with it yet. I did see the research article that came out when they were kind of in the process of developing this. And I, I like that they're doing it because it does mirror some of the uh, social research that we've seen come out of some of these projects in recent years, really trying to dig into what consumers are looking for in new grasses and what they're looking for on the hunt for new grasses. I mean, you know, historically, we haven't made it very easy sometimes for people to to learn what's out there and how it performs. So I think this is pretty exciting. Yeah, Eric Watkins actually gave a paper today on that. Um, I talked about it. And you're right, Brandon, it's just they're just getting things uploaded and going on it. Um, it's just going to get better as far as the information goes. Um, they're also going to try to go back to the sites. And, you know, a lot of times when we enter the NTEP data, it's it's a range, right? So it's you know, bent grass trial less than a half inch. Well, what does that mean if you're trying to select for a green, right? What is the actual cutting height? And so they're going to try to go back to the sites and get that information kind of dialed in and nailed down so that we can have it. And then also offer it at even a higher level. Um, that'll be even simpler. And it's kind of out as a test case right now for the fine fescue, it'd be for the homeowner um, as far as like, okay, this is where you live. This is the grass that should be used for that site. Um, and so they've got it kind of dialed in for the fine fescue test right now, and they're hoping to add on to that and make it so, you know, if you're a lawn care company, you don't have um, people researching the internet and then coming to you saying, I want this variety. Well, it's not available in your area. Yeah, you and can't so even hoping, find it, right? Right. So they're hoping to get that in. So, and is that a one-off to NTEP.org or if one goes to NTEP.org, it takes you to that now? No, you can go to NTEP.org and it's, it's on. So um, let me go back and I'll share again and I'll just show you kind of the navigation. But if you go to NTEP, go to the, so you, you right here, you agree to the evaluation program, you go in, and it's right here. The NTEP Turfgrass database is available now. You click on that and it takes you to this. And then you click on this link and it takes you to the actual Explorer. It's, That's really it's cool. similar to um, Winfield has a tool that they use proprietarily with their sales force to uh, help folks dial in. And they've entered all of the NTEP data into their own tool that allows them uh, at a much more granular level to select out varieties and identify varieties that might be useful in that area. But that's going to be a huge improvement to the NTEP database to be able to get away from currently what is basically a PDF of data to actually be able to sort and use the data uh, effectively to identify varieties. I know in my class, uh, in Turfgrass Strategies class, where we do uh, case studies, one of those case studies is a, uh, a selection exercise where they have to identify what characteristics are they looking for in a particular site, what are the, the things that they, they think are important, and then what ranks or weights that do they put on those and then use a tool like the Winfield tool or this NTEP selection tool to identify varieties that would fit that, those requirements and then make a case for why, why they're choosing one grass over another. 
And, you know, Becky, I think to your point, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is, you know, listening to them discuss and debate what their, what the criteria are. And, you know, traditionally we've focused way too much on what color the grass is and not on these performance characteristics like disease resistance, drought tolerance, water use efficiency, nitrogen use efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think we often think of it through that environmental lens too, but I think what we're seeing in the literature a lot is that the what consumers are really looking for is something that is lower maintenance. And we know that there's a relationship between those two, but you know, we see that now showing up in some of these breeding programs as well. Like I know UGA is working on how can we have these really shade tolerant soysias that maintain a very low mowing requirement, which we know is kind of a desirable trait of many soysias. And so um, yeah, I think increasingly we're going to see a push for how do we have grasses that use less water, not just to save water, but so I don't have to go out there to the control box and mess with that as often as I do now. Yeah, so. It's almost like, uh, you know, a, there's a need for a, a new metric in a way, maybe something, you know, like turf grass durability, right, that takes into account we're, we're, we're using as little water as we can, we might have traffic on top of it. You know, we're, we're mowing it. We have all these attributes that are coming into the system. How durable is that, that turf grass going to be with everything that's laid on top of it? Um, that's really neat to think about kind of shifting the lens. It'd be neat to see how that evolves with time because I, I can just think of a, a couple homeowners here um, that live across the street from one another right by me. And it's what the homeowner expectations are. And, the, and a good friend of Brandon and I, uh, Arthur Hellman from Poland, he's got Tiff Tough in Bermuda grass in his yard. And he bought a Ventrac mower. He bought a $50,000 mower to mow his one acre of grass at his house. <laughs> he's intense, but he's, and he mows it tight and really short. And, and he's got Tiff Tough. But across the street is a homeowner that's retired. And he's able to pump water out of the Tennessee River um, so he doesn't pay a lot, and it's, it's not a limited resource, the water here for him, and he's got bluegrass in his yard. So we've got tip top with not irrigated and a full intense sun, then across the street is a, is a gorgeous bluegrass. But that homeowner is retired, and he wants green grass year-round, and he, and he works on it, and that's his passion, what he's doing. So we can, we can you know, like A.J. Powell taught us, you know, we can grow all grasses equally poor in the transition zone. We've got two people growing them wonderfully in uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, bluegrass and and Bermuda grass. Obviously, the Bermuda grass goes dormant in the winter, but the bluegrass stays nice year round for for that homeowner landscape. But it'd be it'd be neat to see the progress of a of a flow chart with that NTEP site, where what what is the homeowner expectations? What resources are you willing to put into it in terms of a maintenance level or a management level? and a commitment to that yard because because some people still want a nice green lush lawn and if they if the resources are available we can do it and we know that from the studies we've done we can have tall or kentucky bluegrass and tall fescue in tennessee and it doesn't need as much water as we really think it does people over water but it becomes an education tool as well that we need to implement where you know what are your expectations but don't overwater. yeah no that makes sense i mean that's a good segue adam to kind of maybe shift gears a little and talk more cool season. Um, you know, we, we've spent a lot of emphasis here today on, on maybe drought tolerance or drought avoidance in the warm season world. I mean, is the same theme true with what you're seeing with the cool season grasses? There's, you know, there's more of a focus right now on lower input, right? A lot of the um, cool season grasses 
they're trying to lower the fertility needs. Um, we've done so much with that dark green color, right? That dark green, dark green. And so it's pumping it full of nitrogen, things like that in a lot of cases. And so now it's, you know, can you get by with less water? So it is kind of that drought of sorts, um, but also less fertilizer as well. And so there's, there's a lot of interest in that. Um, of course, the other big thing that we see a lot of research in with the cool seasons is shade. Um, you know, like for me in the upper Midwest, Kentucky bluegrass yard is what everybody has. And I get a call almost every day on, well, when I moved into my house 25 years ago, I had the best yard. Well, yeah, but your trees are 25 years older now. So it's not the best grass for your yard. And so, you know, I think the breeders are working hard on shade tolerance, just like they are probably in the warm seasons. Um, you know, and so I think that's, that's another area that they're trying to look at, you know, as far as that goes. Are there any particular, you know, Becky named several entries that kind of popped up in the warm season world, anything that kind of jumps off the page for you as a standout performer in the, in the cool season arena? Yeah. So, um, one of the interesting projects that we just did was we just grew our, um, athletic field. So for athletic field managers, I guess, um, we looked at a lot of data and our, our field manager selected, um, a couple of ones for our sod field that we grew at the research station. And so he looked at um, Legend and Blue Note because of the, the durability and the traffic. We also have a pretty big summer patch issue down there. And so, um, you know, we, we'd seen Blue Note has done fairly well with some disease resistance. And so we were hoping that that would help kind of lower the fungicide budget on that. Um, and then we had Bolt in there as well, um, because of course we grew the sod just like you'd expect out of Iowa, right? We leveled out a cornfield threw some sand on top and then planted it. And so, uh, hold on, I'll show my screen because it's kind of a cool picture for turf people to look at. Um, and so- Was it no-till? <laughs> we tilled in the, uh, we definitely tilled in the corn stalks, but um, so this is kind of what the site looked like. We plowed them in, tilled it in, uh, and then this is what it looked like by September. So that was May and this is September and it, it grew in well. We've cut it, uh, harvested it in May. But again, this is Blue Note, um, Bolt and um, Legend there together working. And so um, I think in that case, like I said, we were, we were looking for something, you know, that would handle traffic, but also disease, things like that. And so those jump off the page to us. Desert Moon's another one that has shown great summer patch resistance. And so we're we're excited about seeing that one out there. So many lawn care companies, you know, they, they fight summer patch. So that's something of interest too. Um, you know, another thing that we see a lot with the breeders is, you know, when you talk about NTEP entries right now, there's a huge focus on tall fescue. And, you know, the last NTEP round, there was 89 uh, varieties in the bluegrass and 132 in the tall fescue. And so, I, I mean, that, that shows you definitely too where the breeders are working hard. And again, that goes back to that lower input, right? I mean, there's, you know, tall fescue uses less water, um, less nitrogen, things like that. So um, I don't know, John, if you've seen anything interesting down there in Tennessee in the tall fescue NTEP or not. We definitely see a lot of interest in the, in the tall fescue NTEP. And one of the things that we've, you know, I'm talking to Brandon too, but we've learned a lot is, you know, gray leaf spots a lot more prevalent in, in tall fescue than we you know, people were thinking it was pythium but it's more of the gray leaf spot has been a bigger issue 
um, that we've learned about. So finding varieties that are better at gray leaf spot resistance is, is important. And yeah, we're, we're getting varieties that are standing out quite a bit for sure. Hey, Adam, I have a question for you. So I feel like, you know, on the warm season side, we rely so much on vegetative propagation and sod, and we're seeing, I guess, some um, new interests or growing interest in developing new seeded options. And I kind of got the impression that sort of the opposite of that was happening on the on the cool season side. Are you guys trying to develop uh, or propagate things differently? Are you seeing that as a trend at all? No, I mean, it's still seeded is the way to go, right? It's easier to ship around the country, establish. So I think that's that's the way to go. I mean, if you know, if you could grow in your golf course or your athletic field, you don't have to worry about moving layers in as far as if you were to move it as sod. And so um, to me, that's the only, you know, the only way to go if you can. Obviously, restrictions are placed on when you have to open things like that. So I guess I was thinking more from a recovery standpoint, too, if there's, if you're still seeing that kind of the go-to for recovering an area that's been trafficked. And I'm an idiot when it comes to cool season grasses. I've always lived in the South. So, uh, but I, I thought I had heard at some point that they were trying to encourage more rhizominous or stoloniferous growth to really promote recovery in some species, but maybe that's oh, yeah. not. Sure. No, there's definitely an interest in that, um, you know, trying to find rhizomatous species, especially, you know, the looking at anything with tall fescue that would have any kind of rhizome always is a big seller uh, as far as that goes, just to try to help heal. Um, we're seeing a huge only one. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I, Adam, I've always said that those are a marketing tool for seed companies. Unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, there's indeterminate rhizomes that you have with Bermuda grass that'll go forever. And even right. bluegrass um, you know, will spread so far and it's almost a determinate spread, but these the tall fescues or the perennial ryegrasses, they'll send out a, 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 a rhizome, but that's when you have a spatial planting and you mow it at like eight inches tall. As soon as you plant it in that tight, contiguous community, the competition keeps it from uh, truly, it's not, a, they're not spreaders. They're not gonna fill in divots or anything like that. You're gonna have to seed those areas, but they're good marketing right. tools for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but they're all looking for it. They're still hoping. Yeah. <laughs> there's a chance. There's a chance, Be. Going back to tall fescue for a minute, and I'm going to segue to you, Brandon, because, you know, our, our old friend, Dr. Samples, you know, he's he's made a point of driving this home for uh, every year we've had Turf Tuesdays, and we'd be remiss to not continue the tradition after his retirement. But, you know, we've got a lot of extension folks that listen in on these, and um, one of the things that I know you've been working on is summer fertility of tall fescue lawns and maybe some of the things that have been baked in the extension handbook or uh, need to be re-looked at in terms of how that affects disease and disease incidents because what you've seen at the research farm has been pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, for sure, that's a that's a that's a big issue. Um, let me just see if I can find this uh, relatively quickly because um, it's it's been a drive. You know, I, we've talked about this in several years of Turf Tuesdays now that historical thinking and it and again it's it's been out there in a lot of different formats in not only UT Extension but other Extension services where tall fescue is uh, a, a, a common species is that you know you avoid 
you avoid summer fertility uh, in order to make your likelihood of getting brown patch lower. And I know when you were at Virginia Tech, you worked on this. And I know uh, your colleague at NC State, Jim Kearns's group, uh, they've worked on this uh, as well. And, and we're just not seeing that to be really true. And here's a really good illustration as to why. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we did a lot of work when I was at Virginia Tech, we had a lot of tall fescue at the research station. So we did quite a bit of work with um, tall fescue in pure stands and then also uh, mixtures of Kentucky bluegrass and tall fescue um, where uh, we found that particularly with mixtures of Kentucky bluegrass and tall fescue, uh, it was important to get a lot more Kentucky bluegrass into the stand than you might think uh, on a percentage basis. Um, and so, uh, you know, in terms of seed number, it's a, an extreme amount of Kentucky bluegrass compared to the tall fescue seed. But what that did was once we got close to a, like a 50, 50, uh, kind of ratio of Kentucky bluegrass to tall fescue on a percentage basis. So there's a lot more seed number of Kentucky bluegrass It ended up being like a, I think it was like an 85% by seed count, uh, num range. Um, once we got a lot more Kentucky bluegrass into the stand, what we saw was a marked decrease in both summer patch and in brown patch, right? Because you had enough mixing of the two species such that you didn't get a lot of spread and visual observation of symptoms. It's not to say that those pathogens weren't present, but you might have a single plant or two that goes down, but the, the fungus can't spread and cause an epidemic amount of of disease in those mixed uh, swords. And then with tall fescue, one of the things that we found very clearly was that, you know, the traditional mantra in the transition zone is to avoid fertility in the summer because you don't want to make the grass more susceptible to brown patch uh, or rhizoctonia. And one of the things, one of the most difficult places that I've ever tried to establish a trial for brown patch is in a well-fertilized tall fescue. Uh, everywhere where I've had really epic uh, brown patch uh, epidemics is in poorly for fertilized tall fescue. And we saw that in the work that we did over at Virginia Tech. And then this is actually from this year. So this first rep here, this is a non-treated control. This is uh, the Galaxy One uh, product at three pounds per uh, thousand square feet. It's a 16 week release profile, very slow release uh, fertility. This is one pound of urea per thousand on a monthly application interval. This is uh, the non-fertilized, but now treated with pedigree, uh, which is flutolanil, uh, which is a good brown patch uh, control fungicide. Uh, then this is the Galaxy One with flutolanil and the urea can, uh, with flutolanil. And what we see uh, in this trial so far is that even in the uh, non-fungicide treated plots, you get much better color. Uh, there is still brown patch present in that uh, sward, uh, but it is masked by the improved color. And then the other thing that you see with the fertility application is that anytime conditions are not conducive to epidemic spread, you get an improvement in the turf quality because the symptoms are growing out and being mown off. 
so you get an improvement in the overall uh, quality of the sward where if you're in this non-treated basically everything you see around this we've not fertilized that in the last two years and all of that is covered with brown patch so that kind of yellow green color is partly nitrogen deficiency but also partly that it's absolutely being decimated by brown patch everywhere you look uh, because the grass just simply doesn't recover out of any any infection that it gets, it just sits there and that serves as an inoculum source for the next epidemic uh, uh, spread and, and, and kind of ramp up when conditions are suitable. So it just gets worse all summer long. Uh, so it's, it's pretty clear that, that this idea of not fertilizing tall fescue in the summer needs to kind of go by the wayside and we need to have a, a judicious amount of fertility applied, but that it, it provides for some recuperative potential to the plant so that when conditions are suitable for growth and don't favor epidemic development, you get recovery. And then when there is some epidemic uh, development, you can either choose to apply a fungicide to control that epidemic, or in a situation where you're budgeted, budget limited or you don't wanna apply those products to your lawn, you, you're still going to have a pretty decent looking lawn uh, and you can recover out of that epidemic uh, when conditions are suitable for growth. Yeah, that's that's super cool and and super impactful uh, for the extension folks that are listening and and we can all uh, be happy that somewhere Tom Samples just smiled. <laughs> One other uh, question I had uh, for the group, and I'll direct this mainly at at Adam and and John, because um, I had this call this morning um, about uh, bluegrasses in the transition zone and. Uh, it was a comment specifically uh, about HGT bluegrass, and this person had done their homework because um, they knew of Barvette as a bluegrass cultivar and wanted to know, is HGT the only vehicle to get that cultivar, or is Barvette in other mixtures, or could one even get Barvette by itself? And maybe give a little background on what Barvet is. I'm, I was remiss in not doing yeah. that. Barvet and HGT is a Berenberg, they're Berenberg varieties. Um, well, it's HGT bluegrass. It's a Berenberg blend, and in it is Barvet. And in the NTEP trials, um, I think, Adam, this might go back to when you were here. We had the traffic events. We, we, it showed that it had by far superior traffic tolerance than the other bluegrasses in the transition zone. We, that's how really got our interest in it initially. Um, it really has that uh, lime green or Granny Smith apple green color to it, and which is not surprising coming from a, a, a Dutch company in Europe. Their, their colors are, tend to be a little lighter. Um, and it's, it's a really good grass, but it's only available by, get, that I'm aware of as a, as a blend with HGT. And one of it is, is, you know, is, is getting back on the breeding thing, it's such, it's a really good variety, but it's not a great seed producer for, so for farmers to get up seed, looking at yield, it's not a great yielder, um, but it's such a good grass that they grow it. And the original HGT bluegrass, I believe was upwards of about 60% Barvet. Now it's down to about 19% in the blend, but over time it'll take over anyways, as we, we, we found in our NTEP trials, it creeped, we had our, our NTEP trials were five feet by five feet. And after the five years, 
it, it had taken over the other bluegrasses in the contiguous plots around them. So um, it's available, um, but it's, it's only available in, in the blend for sure. Adam, I don't know. You can get it from the breeders for research purposes as a, or for maybe barren brood, but you want to chime in? Yeah, I was going to say it's just it's it's a workhorse too. It's a quick germinator. Um, and that's, I think, part of what helps too. It helps crowd out some of the POA, things like that. If you're on an athletic field, obviously, if you're adding that in, in a high traffic area, realize that it might not match with the color what you have around it. You know, you're going to have a lighter green spot. Um, the other thing is, if I remember right, it used to hold up really well to some of the diseases that would come through that end tap. And it would, it would do a really nice job there. Um, it's a high performer. And I think they're still using it as a standard because of its performance in the NTEPs. Um, in the last go around, I believe it was one of the standards. So it's, it's a great, great grass, but yeah, the only way you're gonna get it is through HGT. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's a, that's when I mentioned the bluegrass lawn in, in, in Knoxville across from the tip top, that's what it is, is HT, HT, HGT bluegrass. Um, we've got a sod producer that puts in a ton of it in, in East Tennessee that they grow it and they put it in big roll sod in home lawns and it's a big market in East Tennessee. And they, they put it in where people would want tall fescue and it does, it does, it holds up to what, where tall fescue would do well. It does just as well. And what about performance under drought or deficit irrigation, similar to a tall fescue lawn or? Yeah, it's, it's you know, tall fescue actually uses more water than bluegrass, ironically, to keep it really green color, I, I find. Um, it, it holds up, but when you get really hot in the summer, um, some dry periods, you know, it, it goes into what, it goes into a summer dormancy and those rhizomes, it'll come back, it'll recover. But it, uh, you know, as long as you put a little bit of water just to keep it green, if, it, if you get extended periods, but, you know, we've, we've never gone more than, in the last hundred years, we've never gone more than 35 days without a rainfall in, in East Tennessee. So we're pretty fortunate when it comes to that. But, you know, a little bit once a week just to keep it from, from dying off would be, you'd need an irrigation system, I would say, for the summertime. Yeah, I would agree. And I mean, we had a pretty good drought last summer um, and sprang in and, you know, the bluegrass yards looked just absolutely ravaged up around us and started raining late in the fall and we had a wet spring and then poof, everything was just back and looking good again, as far as that goes. So, um, you know, it speaks to the power of the rhizomes and, and you know, the, the strength of the bluegrass that it, it just goes into dormancy. The worst thing people can do is water and pull it out of dormancy and then let it go back in when they get that first water bill, things like that. So. Speaking of bills, you know, one of the things that uh, I know a lot of folks um, in the lawn care space in, in Tennessee last year commented on to me was the price of seed last fall. Are there any indicators on how seed pricing will be this fall, particularly tall fescue? Have you you heard anything in, in that realm, Adam? You know, the initial reports that I saw were that they had a better harvest this year, more on the lines of normal levels. Um, and so I think like all things, it will still be elevated, but the supply isn't quite as short as last year. Um, and that'll take a little bit to come back because obviously the reserves were taken way down. So um, the big thing I would say is if you're going to order seed, get it done soon. Um, that's my opinion from what I feel up here. I don't know what you guys are seeing down there, but they're in tight supply still, but I think it'll start to moderate back. 
Yeah, and it's I, I'll chime in on that because I, I, I meet with a lot of the seed companies out of Oregon and I'm sitting on some quarterly meetings about the seed supply and that, you know, that 2021 um, high temperatures that they got in the spring really decimated a lot of the supply in Oregon and Washington state where the where, the, where most of our cool season seeds are produced. And you know, the prices have gone up and I don't think they're going to change a lot. They've gotten into coating them to kind of extend the, the, the quantity of their seeds. Um, but I, I've always contended for years that in the whole spectrum of, of, of a lawn and establishing a lawn or a golf course or a sports field, the seed is cheap. I mean, I, I get it. And it's the prices are going up. And if we don't pay the premium for seed, you get what you pay for. Um, these, these, these producers in Oregon are switching to uh, hazelnut instead of and they're waiting 10 years before they can produce get a hazelnut because they're not getting the prices for the seed yields that they're growing so uh, the the supply and the demand is always going to be a challenge because we're we're losing a lot of the supply because producers in Oregon and Washington state are converting to other crops because the, the we people have always expected really cheap seed and they then you get things like Kentucky 31 that just knock out the uh, the bottom of the market when you're not getting the quality that you're also looking for so seeds cheap is what I just say I like to say ends up being a race to the bottom right yeah and so I I think paying that little bit extra for more seed if you're paying an extra 25 30 40 bucks a bag for 50 pound bag I mean for 5,000 square foot lawn it's 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 it's, you know someone's got to eat it and be the end user but it's it's still a a small price on the whole spectrum of prepping that yard to get it ready well, it's certainly a lot less than than sod. I mean, that's the that's the other piece, right? Like we just talked about establishing from sod versus seed. I mean, not only do we like the seed because of its ability to establish and and fill in and that kind of stuff, but it's remarkably cheaper compared to to uh, that same variety that you're going to purchase as a sod variety from from a sod grower. And that's not to say there aren't applications for sod, you know, and you know, a quick you know, quick, quick establishment, that kind of stuff. But, you know, Adam, you, you had that, that picture, you guys did that in, what was it, May? Yeah, we did it in a year and a day. Yeah. So from, from, from cornfield to really, really nice Kentucky bluegrass stand in one year and one day, I mean, and, and certainly from, in terms of acceptability, you were, that was four or five months, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing I think, John, you hit on the head, you know, lawn care operators really need to sit down and do the math with the coatings. I mean, everybody's coating stuff this year. And so you're going to have to think about that. I mean, that's, that's totally true. And I've heard several people that have said that, you know, my stand didn't come in real well. Well, did you slow down and think about the fact it's coated? Yeah. But half the seed that you had before. Mm -hmm. And switching gears back to warm season real quick, Becky, you know, John mentioned, growers in Oregon taking fields out of seed production into other crops. Have you seen that with warm season grasses in the South at all with some of the supply chain uh, economy hurdles we've been faced with? I haven't seen that a whole lot yet. You know, Texas, we actually have some of the cheapest sod in the country and it's a very lucrative market for us. We did uh, take some hits actually more due to our big uh, winter storm that we had last year. I would say more so maybe than some supply chain issues. I think I've actually almost seen maybe a trend the other way where we've had some farmers that have historically done agronomic crop production that are, are switching over to sod. Um, so 
Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've seen that to the same extent here, um, but you know, certainly we've had some price increases and things like that. Yeah, and I'm sure the install costs, particularly on the freight of moving it from the farm to the site has gone up dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trucking yeah. prices, obviously that's a big deal for, for the sod industry. And uh, I know the Turf Producers International and Casey with them has, has done a great job trying to uh, get, get them noticed as an agri- agricultural commodity so that they don't have to abide yep. by some of the trucking things and it's made it a lot better for the sod producers. Working with a good broker, if you're going to be ordering sod, is key to get that delivery too. If if it's if you're doing it at a long distance. Speaking of that, John, as someone who's involved with TPI, any any updates on the sod checkoff? I I don't have an update on it. Um, I haven't had we haven't had a meeting for quite some time that I've been on. So, but I I know it's pushing forward. And man, if that goes through, that's going to be great for our industry. That's all I know. Is we've got to be supportive of that as much as we can. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, for those listening that are unfamiliar, that's a, I think it, you correct me if I'm wrong, John, it's a federal program that'll be associated with the sales of sod that uh, a portion of that funding would go back then to support the turf grass industry. And the the parallels are, uh, I guess, in uh, poultry, that's where the incredible edible egg campaign came from. And uh, and beef production, uh, the kind of got or beef. It's what's for dinner campaign came from. So, got milk. uh, yeah. got milks and other, thank you. Um, so yeah, that would be, uh, really big for turf if we could get something to, uh, be on that level. Yeah, for sure. So, so this can be the last campaign. Question. The campaign will be John hiding in the grass, like looking through the grass, just <laughs> kind of like you, kind of like you, Jim. Like Pedro and Napoleon Dynamite getting ready to deliver the cake, right? Yeah. Hey, there's only one person on this call with a background in turf grass modeling, and it is not me. It is uh, it is Dr. Sorokin as the hand model for Michigan State University. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I could, if it was quick enough in my photos, I could bring it up. I uh, could find it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, I guess the last question I'll ask before we uh, close out here, um, another homage to our old friend, Dr. Samples, um, is with blue muta and, and the mixtures of cool season and warm season grasses together. Um, we get questions on that here in the transition zone. I don't know, Becky, if in Northern Texas, that's something that's come through the extension channels. I think we're starting to hear about it a little bit more. Um, I'm still not seeing it even up in the panhandle trending a whole lot yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to move more and more that way. Um, I have seen just more cool season grasses in general used here in the Dallas area recently in shaded areas, which was not something we saw for, for a while. Um, and I think that's due to some of the advancements that we're seeing in some of those grasses. And so, um, but but no, I ha- haven't seen it a whole lot yet, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's coming more. Adam, how about you and uh, in Iowa? I can't think Bermuda grass is a common, uh, a common word. Nope, nope. It's, um, we have a thing called winter that does a real nice job of removing it, so. <laughs> yeah, no, no herbicide needed. Nope. <laughs> I, will, uh, I will quickly share to prove I have it. This is, uh, 
Dr. Sorokin's hand, his, his uh, foray into turf grass modeling. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, the Hancock Turf Grass Research Center, I assume, John, at Michigan State. Yes, it is. Ron Calhoun took that picture. And uh, yeah, then they animated it. So there's also an animated version of that. <laughs> well, there you have it. I'll, uh, I will leave that there. Let me bring up for our superintendent uh, colleagues that are listening their um, information that they need. Uh, this has nothing, I'll repeat, it has nothing to do with uh, pesticide certification. This is only uh, for our golf course superintendent colleagues that are with us today. Uh, if you are interested in uh, continuing education points from the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, uh, this is your event approval code on the screen, 999-241-4900. Uh, Three one nine six one. Make sure you list today's date as your event date, July twelfth, twenty twenty two. Again, this is only for uh, Golf Course Superintendents Association of America credits. This has nothing, uh, nothing to do with pesticide credits of any kind. And if for some reason you missed this and you need this, we we all have this available. You can email me, and I'll be happy to share this uh, with you for when you uh, upload this to GCS AA. All right, any, uh, any last words before we sign off here? I just wanna thank you for inviting me and having me on. And I will make a really quick plug now that there is an NTEP tool to check out the uh, Dalza 1701 and 1311 experimental lines. Those are our new uh, top Zoysia contenders. And so keep an eye on those. I, I think they're gonna be game changers. Awesome. Can you repeat those numbers one more time, Becky? Yeah, it's Dalza as in Dallas and then ZA and it's 1701 and 1311. Okay, I hope everybody got that has those written down. Adam, enjoy Copenhagen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care, everyone. I appreciate you from signing for signing in from uh, across the across the pond, Adam, and safe travels back. Hopefully, it's an uneventful journey. Um, <laughs> and thanks to everyone for for joining us. You know, we had a good crowd today, well over a hundred people, and. Uh, uh, we'll be back in August. Our, our August session is going to focus on uh, Neyland Stadium and preparing the surface there for the upcoming uh, football season here at UT. They've, for those who are unaware, they've had some uh, stadium renovations that have gone on for, for the uh, duration of the summer, and there's, there's a lot uh, happening as we get closer to the next football season. So uh, until then, we'll see everyone in August. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the rest of your day.